0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger. the ones who
2: get it done.
4: The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio.
5: Hey there, welcome back to the latest edition of the Book of Joe podcast, and it is the final week of the regular season. And, and Joe, you sound as if maybe you can cut a rap album. I don't know, but maybe the, the length of the season is catching up to you here on the podcast.
2: It is. It is. Um, you know, uh, we always get these little colds this time of the year. It's uh, playoff weather. Uh, I've been through a long season of golf, and right now I think it's kind of catching up to me. The weather's starting to change a bit. Uh, I've driven down to Tampa, a two-day trip, stopped in Charlotte, eventually made it to Tampa. Saw the Bucks and Eagles last night. Pretty impressive job by the Eagles. So, uh, yeah, I'll be fine. It's just It's just that time of the year. Yeah, it's time to come up big, as Justin
5: Verlander did in the first game of a huge series between the Astros and the Mariners. And Joe, you know the American League West inside and out. And so that's where I want to start with our focus here. We've got three teams, Mm -hmm. Texas, Seattle, Houston, three really good teams. One of them is going home because I think the Toronto Blue Jays look like They have a good foothold here and I have the Rangers in the playoffs here. They have a three game lead in the lost column with six to play. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've righted the ship here. Uh, So we've got Seattle and Houston for me. That's what it's going to come down to handicap those three teams. Who do you like? Who do you don't like coming down here
2: in the final week of the season in the AL West? Well, I'm not trying to be a front runner, but like you said, Texas looks like they have figured things out again. It's just, um, I always think about in 2005 when the um, White Sox won the World Series. We were playing in Chicago in the beginning of September in Chicago. They were awful. They were absolutely awful. Uh, we, As the Angels went to the playoffs that year, we almost uh, we ended up losing to them in the playoffs. They went to the World Series and won it. But they were terrible. They were absolutely terrible. But all of a sudden, they flipped the switch. Their pitching was that good. They turned things around. And, of course, they had a good team. So. That happens sometimes. You got to go through these bad moments, and then if you regain traction, here we go. And I think that's what Texas has done. They've regained their mojo. They've regained traction. They've got a lot of good things going on there. Uh, Montgomery's been pitching extremely well, obviously. And so I think if they're in, uh, the other two teams, again, it's a coin toss, but it's just the opposite. There, Houston has the pedigree. Uh, they have the pedigree. They've done it before. They got this weird. Uh, record this year where they're better on the road, correct? I, Much which really, better, yeah. I, I don't get that. I mean, and again, it's antithetical to the years of uh, banging on uh, trash cans. But And I think they do play on the road towards the end of the season, correct? Houston does?
5: Yeah, they're done with the home schedule. They yeah. um, actually finished under 500 in their home schedule. Now, in the history of baseball, there's been more than 400 postseason teams, teams that made the postseason in full seasons, not counting as short in 2020 or 81 seasons. Only one of them had a losing record at home as 2001 Braves were one game under. So it's very unusual to have a losing record at home and still be a playoff team. The Astros
2: might be able to pull that off. I, well, I think they are. I mean, that's, I guess what I'm saying is I think they will be based on if they've been doing that all year. I don't see any reason why that trend should discontinue. And and again, I just think the Mariners are just... Uh, They've pushed so hard to get back into this thing. They went you know, uh, south for a bit. They were hot. Absolutely, they were hot. Uh, but then again, it's about getting hot at the right time. So I'm going with Houston and Texas. The two Texas teams getting their way in there, I agree with the Toronto component of this thing. So um, I just think that eventually you're going to see Seattle looking from the outside in.
5: Yeah, they face, I think, they have to win the next two against... The Astros here after losing the opener. Yeah, um, right. My quick take on these three teams in the AL West: Texas. Yeah, I agree with you. They've righted the ship here. A lot of that is Bruce Bochy. Is just, I mean, he's he's a, going to the Hall of Fame. He he knows how to to set the right tone with this team. No panic, and it's it is a veteran team, so you don't expect them to to dig a bigger hole once they do hit that eventual skid. One thing concerns me about Texas, Joe. In the second half, their bullpen is 26th in the major leagues. In the second half of the season, ERA is over five. Now, this team is tremendous offensively, and their path to making a run in the postseason really is on the backs of their offense. It reminds me a little bit of Philadelphia last year. It's good enough to do that. As you know, it's a hard way to navigate the postseason if you really want to rely on offense. But I do think their offense is that good where they can be a scary team because – they're loaded up and down the lineup.
2: Yeah, I, I've been through it though. I mean, uh, yeah, I do like their, I do like their team offensively speaking. Again, there's something that I, I kind of thought I figured out a little bit when I was still there with Seager. I don't, I mean, really, I would not throw the guy a strike the whole playoffs. I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't throw him a strike. I would make him um, adjust to me. I would make him swing out of pitches outside of the zone, and then I would take my chances with everybody else. I know there's other good guys in the lineup. I get it. But then when you start applying pressure in other areas, um, it, it makes a difference with the group. Um, you know, the, the second baseman's outstanding. Um, you know, the catcher's done a really good job, Haim. Uh, um, but I, I I just think that is really the the straw right there. So I'd be very careful uh, when I play them. Uh, you know, pitching-wise, yeah. I, and the thing about that is it's so antithetical. Boach is so good with the bullpen, so it also indicates, you know, regardless of how, Good, you can manage a particular part of the game. If you don't have the right players, it makes it makes it, uh, problematic. So those are really important things to me. Is uh, my bullpen in the playoff situation? And if I'm relying on hitting only, because you're going to run into some hot pitching staffs, and that that's they they could still do a number on you, uh, your offensive side of the of the ball. So that would be my concern with them moving forward. If the bullpen is not somewhat uh, fixed uh, and becomes a little bit more. Uh, the less porous, it's gonna be difficult, very difficult, because good pitching will stop that, I believe.
5: Yeah, my take on Houston is the pedigree is just too good to ignore here. And you don't like to think teams can just turn it on and turn it off, but they know how to win ball games when they need to win ball games. They're just so much playoff experience. They've been in just about every imaginable situation. Think about this. They went through a three and nine stretch where they lost three series to the Royals and the A's, literally the two worst teams in baseball. They look like they're hanging by a thread. They walk into Seattle on the road, give the ball to Justin Verlander, and he takes the ball to the ninth inning. And how about this, Joe? Justin Verlander, in that opener of the three-game series with Seattle, his average fastball velocity for Seamer was 93.5. That's the lowest he's had in any game since 2016. And he took the ball to the ninth inning through an absolute gem. Oh, by the way, the Mariners went 0 for 13 against the guy with his worst quote-unquote velocity since 2016. That that to me speaks to who the Astros are. You trust the guys with the pedigree.
2: And no team has more a playoff pedigree right now than do the Astros his breaking ball is so good right now and I don't even know what the Scott report necessarily is with the Mariners fastball versus breaking ball. Uh, but again he's whatever he's lost there he's, he's picked up in his pitchability. Uh, just knowledge is want to all that kind of stuff is there. but last time I saw him on the tube, I thought his breaking ball was really sharp and again he's got this uh, this inner flame that few have. Last point about the Astros too is that okay. I think they're going to get to the playoffs, but I think it's going to be hard to really get deep into the playoffs. And not just because, and it is just because, they've been doing it for so many years now um, to really um, fan the flames to the point where they get hot enough uh, internally, mentally, uh, wanting it badly enough. And i listen, that's not an indictment against them. It's just difficult as human beings to get to that level. You know, I, see, I see Texas figuring it out a little bit more than Houston does right now, just based on the fact they haven't been there in a while. And, uh, the and you know, there, the start they got off to, all that stuff, I think is going to come back to them a little bit. So I like Texas, even though I just said what I said about their bullpen and you could pitch them a little bit. But I would just, um, from a uh, humanitarian perspective, a, hu- a human perspective, uh, I think their, their flames are going to be a little bit hotter to get this done than Houston's.
5: As for Seattle, you mentioned their offense. Uh, what I don't like about their offense is there's just too much swing and miss. So you look at the highest strikeout rates in baseball. You've got Minnesota, number one, and Seattle, number two. That Just too much swing and miss. And a guy like Verlander, who has become, and really has been for a long time, a complete pitcher. You know, I threw it out there about his four-seam fastball because we always think of JV with that high-riding, mm-hmm. four-seamer, top of the zone, upper 90s. But, man, he knows how to pitch. As you mentioned, the breaking stuff is really good. So he can exploit a lineup that has holes in it, swings and misses to be found. And uh, that's, that scares me about Seattle. The other thing here is, is it's generally a really good pitching staff. It's a top three staff, top to bottom in the major leagues. But they rely a lot on young pitching. And the Seattle starting pitchers in September – are seven and nine with a 477 seven ERA. You've got guys like Kirby, who's going to get the ball in the upcoming game here, um, even Gilbert a little bit. But some of those guys now are at that point where can they hold it long enough to get this team into the postseason? And September has not been good for a team that really, to me, their pitching is great, but it hasn't
2: been as good as it was the first five months. Uncharted waters, right? Um- that, that's why like when I was with the Rays, and I hate to go historical on it, everybody, but I really wanted my starting pitching staff to throw a 1,000 innings. I did. I, I really wanted to get as close to 200 out of each starter as we possibly could and sometimes exceeded, which we did. Um, point is, when you get to that level of uh, competency regarding um, uh, mentally and physically being able to pitch that late into the season, season successfully, Uh, I think it's a difference maker. It's hard. Again, everybody wants to rely on bullpens. Now everybody wants to turn the ball over after five innings or four plus, whatever. Uh, I still like the tried and true method uh, to really develop uh, thoroughbreds, guys that can do those kind of things. And I think it can be developed. I don't understand. Uh, the, The only thing preventing it, I think, is, if anything, the insistence upon throwing as hard as we possibly can all the time. And then go out there, you know, dial it up from first pitch Uh, As long as you can, as hard as you can, we'll bring somebody else in as opposed to pitchability where guys can go six, six plus innings on a more consistent basis. And it becomes a badge of honor uh, when you're a starting pitcher that you do throw um, 200 or really close to it on an annual basis. Um, I I still think it's it's desirable to nurture that. Again, am I living in the past? I don't know why. It's just it's it's very capable. We're just not nurturing it now uh, two ways. We're not permitting it to happen. Uh, minor league-wise, pushing guys a little bit farther in innings pitch than number two uh, by insisting upon a method of just trying to throw the ball as hard as you can and spinning the ball. I think those are two things that uh, are really preventing the 200-inning pitcher. It's a great point, Joe, and I think you're absolutely dead right about that. It's a
5: chasing velocity and chasing swings and misses on the mound. So that's why that you see abbreviated starts, guys not going deep in the games, uh, walk rate hasn't gotten any better, strikeout rate has, but – you know, I did the game last night for FS1, the Giants, and watching Logan Webb pitch, what a treat. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's throwing 92 at best, but the movement on his sinker and changeup is just crazy. And this is a kid who does not want to come out of the game, leads the major leagues in innings pitch. He pitched the ninth inning and had a one-run lead, two runners on base, nobody out. He was not coming out of that game. He threw three straight ground balls 216 innings into the season to get out of a ninth inning jam and win the darn game. I mean, come on. We need more of those kind of pitchers. That was a treat to watch.
2: Isn't it? I mean, and again, I do not I, I do believe it's out there. I do believe it's out there. It's just it's just methodology. How are we going to go about this? What are we going to permit? What are we going to nurture? What do we think wins? Um, I mean, at the point analytics shifts to the point where the starting pitcher becomes more necessary, then you'll see uh, organizations attempt to nurture and build up arm strength and number of pitches thrown and get guys into more innings on an annual basis. Uh, That's just an analytical shift. Uh, If if everything remains the same regarding the way front offices are are constructed, I I do believe that. I I believe I know it. I've seen it. I believe it. I know it. It has, it's going to come down to uh, again, different training method, a different uh, mindset uh, paradigm shift in regards to how we uh, treat our minor league pitchers and what we expect out of them. And it even goes back to high school and college. You know, where they're, they're just teaching kids to crow up and throw as hard as they can. That's got to go away. I was talking to a trainer the other day, really my my favorite trainer in all of baseball. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was telling me how arm injuries are so severe. It's almost their arms are blowing up based on the training methods employed today. And that's, that's why you're seeing this radical shift in the number of surgeries. And not only that, when they do get in there, the fact that the arms are blown up so badly. Uh, these are the kind of things that have to be addressed, and there's only one reason: it's the methods being um, taught, the 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 stress that's being put on the arm, based on, like you said, velocity, missing bats. And the other day, I wrote him. I wish I remember the pitcher that was talking about pitching the contact. I wanted to applaud him. You pitch the contact, and when you get to get the two strikes, then you try to strike somebody out in the right situation. But you can't strike somebody out with zero strikes on them.
5: Hey, Joe, as long as we're talking about the American League West, I want to ask you about Mike Trout. Mm-hmm. Um, we, he talked to the media f- actually for the first time in a couple of weeks here um, this week and a lot of speculation about whether Mike Trout will want to leave, force a trade from the Angels. Now, he has a full no-trade clause, so nothing's happening unless Mike Trout wants it to happen. Mm-hmm. He was somewhat, and you know Mike so well, he, he's not going to rock anybody's boat. And he's not going to answer a direct question about, hey, do you want to play here or do you want to be traded? Uh, he said something. He's going to sit down with Artie Moreno and with John Carpino, as he does at the end of every season. He's going to go home, uh, kind of clear his mind. You know, Mike likes to get away from the game with his eagles and his hunting and all that in the offseason. Uh, and then get ready for spring training in a Angels uniform. He wasn't committing to anything, but that's Mike Trout. I mean, he's not going to rock anybody's boat. Joe, I don't know your take on Mike, but I cannot see Mike Trout saying, get me out of here. I could be totally wrong. Maybe he's harboring something underneath the surface here. But he's such a loyal guy to the Angels, the way they've treated him from the day they drafted him after so many teams passed on Mike. Um, You know, I I just don't know if Mike Trout wants to go somewhere else. Does he want to win? Absolutely.
2: Does he want to force a trade? That's a different question. I mean, I've, I've, and please take this the right way. I'm not identifying myself in any way, shape or form to his talent level. I'm just talking about geography. We're from the same neck of the woods. Basically he's a little bit uh, into New Jersey, South of Philadelphia. I'm a little bit North Um, just where we come from. Uh, Yeah. I don't, I I don't see him doing those kind of things. I don't see him being demanding Uh, when you're raised in a small town like that. And, and the humility that surrounds that it's difficult to ever, uh, arrive at the point where you think things are all about you. So I don't, I don't see him doing that. I can see him having a conversation. I could see him just to Artie and John relaying his, um, his feelings, his thoughts. But I, I I just, it's antithetical again to his uh, personality and where he comes from and his parental background and his friends and his coaches. Um, it's hard, man. It's hard to, um, I think, to step away from that uh, those roots, those upbringings. So, yeah, I, I, I could see him wanting to speak with and finding out what they think uh, more than forcing onto them what he thinks. Well
5: said. Hey, we're gonna take a quick break, Joe. And when we get back, I really want to ask you about managers around the game. We have not had a managerial change in the course of this season. Are there any coming up after the season? We'll talk about that next.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. <laughs>
5: Welcome back to the book of Joe podcast. Yeah. Managers. How about this, Joe? None have been fired this year. No changes. This is after last year. There were seven teams that changed their manager either during the season and after the season. Of course, you were part of that early on. And, and I know Joe, you're not going to bring this up, but I will. you talk about what happened with the angels with you, um, you had a three-year contract with an option year. Mm. The first year was a COVID season. I mean, no manager taking over a team is able to implement any parts of their culture in a COVID-shortened season. I mean, it was just so unusual. The next year, there's a lockout. (laughs) The spring training starts extremely late, and half of your star players were basically on the IL for more than half of a season. And then the next year, um, after a 27-29 start, you're out. So really, three years, you didn't have a quote-unquote normal season, not one. Okay, since then, uh, your record, by the way, you were, your winning percentage was 482 in that third year, 468 overall. Since then, the Angels are worse. They're 441. So you're not going to say it, but I'll say it that you really didn't have a, a full run with the Angels. And as time is starting to show here, the manager wasn't the problem with the Angels because they've been worse off since you've been gone.
2: Yeah, listen. It's um, I really did want to stay there longer. I wanted to stay there actually for a long time. I grew up as an angel. I was a California angel, and that's really why I wanted to go back there. I thought uh, my relationship with Artie was one that um, I would be able be given the opportunity to bring us back to what I consider the glory years. Uh, I was such a big part of um, the the first uh, World Series championship, and then after that, even to the point I left with the Rays and go back to the minor league level. So I went California angel. That's who I am. And I'll say that to anybody. And I really had wished that Artie had uh, renamed him, rebranded them the California angels when he took them over, as opposed to the Los Angeles angels, which says no, uh, does not ring with me at all. Um, I I just think it's uh, too far from the truth. So anyway, having said that, yeah, I wanted to be there longer. I really do believe we could have turned it around hundred percent, not even 99%. Um, There was a lot of things there that uh, I felt, we're, we're going in the right direction, as evidenced by the, the beginning of that season, or my last season there. And then we just couldn't hit. We just couldn't pitch. Um, we, I was, you know, forced to make some bullpen decisions based on availability. And then all of a sudden, Bob's your uncle and I'm out of there, right? Uh, but you're talking about uh, that situation compared to now. And again, I, I think the lack or... Why we're not seeing as many managerial firings is because of the influence of the, of the front office. I was in more of a unilateral dis- uh, decision-making uh, situation with the Angels. I did uh, fight on some things I didn't like. I let people know what I didn't like. And that probably was a big part of my demise there. But you're not going to get that for most managers today. You're not going to get uh, pushback with front offices when you don't agree with something. Um, you know, Quite frankly, a lot of the guys that are managing right now have never done it before prior to this. So you don't really know what you think sometimes. You just know what they, what the group of on top tells you to think. I'm just being honest. So I think the, the lack of firing is pretty much because there's so much influence from the front office to the, to the clubhouse, to the game, that it would almost be like they'd be firing themselves. You know, if in fact they, they chose to let a manager go after feeding him so much information, asking him to do so many different things during the game, and then eventually saying you're the problem, when in fact obviously it's not true. So that's my uh, short-winded diatribe.
5: (laughs) Well, think about it. I mean, there's been some great uh, surprise teams pop up. The Reds still in the race here in the last week, the Diamondbacks. Of course, the Orioles taking a huge leap forward with Brandon Hyde this year. Great stories, right? Mm -hmm. But a big part of this year also is the amount of money spent on teams that really have been disasters. The three biggest payrolls in baseball, the Mets, the Yankees, the Padres, all with losing records. Mm-hmm. The Cardinals and the White Sox have been disasters. I don't know if we're going to see a managerial change among any of those teams. It's really interesting to me that uh, some of these teams that really underachieve, you don't hear a lot of noise. Now, Aaron Boom was just kind of speaking out loud, answering questions the other day. He doesn't know what his future is going to be with the Yankees. I got to believe he's coming back, Joe. I, it, this season is not on Aaron Boone. I think the players have, have made it clear that, that they like him. Not that that's the be all and the end all. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you get the confidence of the players, and uh, there's other things that are lacking. I get that, but I think he's done a good job. I think the roster was really not built for today's game to
2: start out. That's not on him. Uh, give me a quick take on Aaron Boone. I agree. I agree. All those guys you mentioned should come back next year. It's, it's more the acquisitional process than it is the in-game management of the team. Um, there are so many folks that want to be involved in um, the daily uh, runnings or the making of the team that it becomes confusing. And I think, again, that's why uh, it's very difficult to pin any of the uh, negativity on the managers, because they are just part of this uh, fluid system that runs from the top to the bottom. Promotership from some of these situations... Uh, right down to the dugout, ownership, the front office, eventually to the dugout. So uh, they're, they're great communicators. Aaron is, Buck is, Bobby Melvin is, I mean, you've mentioned somebody else too. I can't remember. Um, But these guys are all good, good, really good at what they do. And they're great communicators. And a big part of their job is to, um, at least twice a day, get in front of the cameras before or after the game, and then kind of uh, uh, be the spokesperson, almost uh, the press secretary for the organization. And these guys are really good at that. So, Again, uh, the acquisitional process needs to be uh, more under scrutiny as opposed to the managerial process, uh, number one. And then, and then again, um, analytically, I know that the uh, Yankees are going through this analytical deep dive, which I find interesting. Um, it's, I think eventually all this is going to lead to more of a balanced situation, which I think is great, where you do balance analytics with uh, baseball acumen, uh, teaching the game and then using uh, – ac- uh, analytics serving baseball, not baseball serving analytics, which is, I think, pretty much what's going on right now. So I think you get back to this balance situation. And if, in fact, the manager becomes more prominent in decision-making, then it will be where you see managers either glorified or fired more uh, consistently or easily. But when the uh, brunt of the decision-making is uh, being derived or, or dictated from up above, it's hard for these managers to be fired because they're pretty much... Basically, carrying out what the front office wants.
5: You're right, and I think that's especially true with the Yankees with Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman. They have a great relationship. I, you know, I, I don't think it makes sense to to go anywhere else mm-hmm. when they they do work together very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not a knock on Booney. As you said, it's just the way that the game is. Now, a couple of other situations. Now, Buck Showalter with the Mets. That's interesting because now David Stearns is the president of baseball operation. New guy comes in. And you don't know. So I think it's probably 50-50 whether David Stearns wants Buck Showalter back. I think when you hire David Stearns, who essentially was a free agent and a marquee free agent for what he does, you give him the right to pick his own manager. And I think that's clear. We don't know where he is on Buck. We'll have to find out. In San Diego with Bob Melvin, you know, him and A.J. Perella have been together now a couple of years. They went to the NLCS last year and – really the relationship has not been great or at least productive in this, in this season. So I don't know. I don't know with, if, if that relationship is going to continue going forward, are both going to be back uh, Are is one going to be back and not the other. There's a lot of questions with San Diego. No one knows where they're going other than their payroll is going to be reduced. Uh, Blake Snell, Josh Hader, free agents. They'll put Juan Soto on the trade market, see what they can get. Um, the, the baseball town that San Diego has become is a tremendous story. I mean, they filled that place, sold out more than 60 of their home games. It is tremendous atmosphere. It's really analogous to, to Philly going to uh, Citizens Bank ballpark. The energy in that ballpark is tremendous. Those fans turned out for a losing team this year. Um, I, I think they, like the Yankees, are going to have to really take a deep dive here, not just into the analytics But who are they as a franchise and where are they going? It's not an obvious answer to that question, but I think San Diego has some hard questions they have to answer. And I think both the general manager and the manager are part of those
2: questions. You you said it properly, the relationship. I mean, that's a big part of the most important part of all of this, Um, the relationship. Like when I was with the Angels there, uh, Perry did not hire me. So I, I totally understand him wanting to get his own guy at some point. I do get it. I, I, I can't deny that at all. Um, the relationship between the GM and the field manager is extremely important. I, again, I, uh, for years with Andrew, Andrew and I, uh, we did wonderfully together. And I used to advise my um, people that I knew that were in the game, that were not getting jobs, coaches on the minor league level, whatever. I, I advised them that they really need to understand this new method I did about analytics and how it applies to the game. If you're not into it, please uh, school yourself a bit on it because you really need to be able to speak that language in order to get a job, and I knew that, and I did I did uh, advise people about that. Andrew and I were able to um, balance all that because Andrew knew where I was coming from. He knew I was into it. I mean, it was started from the first um, time I walked into that uh, room in Houston for that interview. I came armed with a notebook full of my analytical stuff. He knew that from the beginning, but he also knew how um, – severely important it was to me to uh, incorporate old school methods of scouting, teaching, etc. And I really tried to impart that on him because that's something he had not been a part of prior to coming into that. We created this wonderful balance, I thought, where we could argue. He and I could argue, which was really important. Uh, We had some great arguments, (laughs) really good, about different, uh, whether it's uh, who to play, who not to play, whether to swing on a 3-0 count or not. Uh, all those things were really good arguments he and I had back then. And, uh, even to the role of the bullpen guy, um, where you go to a high, higher leverage guy in a situation, um, uh, earlier in the game, even though traditionally it said you should go from to the seventh, to the eighth, to the ninth inning guy, he's the guy that really changed my thinking on that. Gosh, I don't even know if it was 2012 or 11 or somewhere in that general vicinity. So we had this really good, uh, method going on where we could, uh, we had this relationship. That we could argue health in a healthy manner, and I was his guy, and that's why we survived and uh, we did so well together. Uh, GMs have to have their guy, and it's it, it should be rooted in a great relationship. I mean, thought Theo and I had that too when I went to the Cubs. I was kind of disappointed there after five years because I thought we had uh, actually uh, way more left in the tank than that, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, but that's that's it. You have to you have to be. The GM needs, pretty much needs to hire you. Whoever that GM is, he needs to hire you to really um, work up that same sheet of music, I think.
5: Joe, you said that so well, and I think the most important point to drive home there is that disagreement is good and healthy. It's part of a productive atmosphere. You want people around you who can challenge your beliefs. You don't want people just to rubber stamp where you're going. It doesn't mean you have to be at loggerheads all the time. Mm-hmm. But debate is healthy. It's it's not a bad thing. When you hear about some friction, that's good. It make you, makes you rethink it, the different perspectives in any kind of line of work, I think, is is healthy. It's part of what teamwork is all about. So I'm glad you drove that home. It doesn't mean that you have to dislike one another. No. You shouldn't be challenged by someone's difference of opinion. You should actually welcome it.
2: Let me tell you this. That's been that's really been missing, honestly, more recently in the game. People, players, I mean, coaches are afraid to argue. I think for two reasons. Number one, they really don't know what they believe anymore. Because again, I'll go back to my minor league training. I knew what I believed. Uh, I knew what I knew based on the mentors that I had coming up. I knew that I, I was I was firmly entrenched. To me, the guys today, a lot of them have not spent enough time uh, being mentored in the minor leagues by true teachers of the game. Uh, my biggest concern is who's passing on the game to the next generation of coaches, even more than players. Who's the influ Who are the influencers uh, regarding how the game's being taught now and how that's going to move forward? I'm 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 the influencer now, based on 1970s, 1980s baseball and all the people I ran into at that particular juncture, and I bring in I bring into bear that, and combining that with what I've learned since then uh, in a more uh, contemporary approach, whether you want to call that analytics or not. But I think I'm able to blend both because I've had such wonderful mentors. So we need to be careful uh, regarding who's coaching the coaches, who's mentoring that group that's going to bring the game to the next decade or so.
5: Well, Joe, um, that leads me to our our next segment here after a break. We will talk about there will be at least one managerial change, Mm -hmm. and it's a guy that you have a lot in common with. We'll talk about that right after this.
8: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. And Joe Madden. the parallels you have with Terry Francona are very interesting. You know, Terry hasn't come out and officially announced that he is going to retire, whatever that may be for Terry. But, yeah, he's not coming back to the Guardians. Just an incredible career in baseball. Uh, You just finished talking about, you know, getting some experience under your belt, kind of learning your way up the baseball ladder. He has done that, not just by playing the major leagues, but he went to rookie ball. He went to A ball. uh, He went to Double A three years. Uh, He was in front office. Uh, That was all before. He got a job managing the Phillies. And then after the 2003 season, it's Joe Madden and Terry Francona who are both up for the Boston Red Sox job. Uh, just a loaded team, ready to win, as it turned out. And and Terry Francona was the guy to get it done. Terry Francona wins in Boston. Joe Madden wins in Chicago with the Cubs. Two of the longest droughts, two of the most historical droughts in sports history, those two guys – ended those droughts. <laughs> Terry Francona has a career winning percentage as a manager of 539. Joe Madden 532. And by the way, Francona ejected 50 times in his career and Joe Madden 59. So they've got that as well. Um of course we cannot forget the 2016 World Series. Joe Madden and Terry Francona go up against one another. The darn series is tied after nine innings in the seventh game. That's how close that series was. So Terry Francona, one of the true characters in the game, besides being just a fantastic manager. I think he's just beloved everywhere that he's been by every player he's had. Um, So I'm interested Joe in in your quick thoughts on on Tito and, and how long you've gotten to know him.
2: Yeah. Like you said, I started in zero four when um, uh, he and I both were interviewing for the Red Sox job. I remember that really, really well. Uh, That was my first, obviously big opportunity. And, um, I, I remember, uh, interviewing with Theo Jed and, um, uh, shoot with the Dodgers. Uh, uh, Josh Burns. Burns, Josh Burns. Yeah. Uh, in and, uh, Phoenix. I remember that interview very well. They put me through a bunch of exercises and, uh, I had to buy, I bought a special suit because blue Bavese told me I had to all this kind of stuff. And I sat down in the Phoenician, I think it was, and we talked and, um, uh, great experience for me. Uh, and of course I lost out to Terry, but, I was, I was, I told Theo later, you did the right thing. You picked the right guy. I wasn't really ready uh, to be in Boston at that moment. I think uh, Tito's experience having been in Philadelphia really um, played well for him. I think it, it made him more uh, exactly ready for that particular job as I would have been. So I thought that was a great decision on Theo's choi- uh, part, and I told him so. Uh, moving forward, though, we had match <clears throat> to the Lockhorns. You know, you talk about uh, the winning percentage of those first two years. In Tampa Bay were difficult, man. We lost hundred and almost hundred games his next first two years, and then after that in two thousand and eight, that's when the Rays became good, and we played the Red Sox, and that was the the first big encounter we had was um, Game Seven um, when we won on that ground ball to Aki, and all of a sudden we're going to the World Series. The thing about uh, like just like you said with Tito, you know, there's a, a character about his group, the fact that they were not afraid, the fact that he was going to be calm the fact that you had to be on your toes. And all these things that I love, uh, when you look in the other side, look in the other dugout, talk to him before the game, a little gamesmanship going on, he'd mess with you a little bit, which I loved. Um, but I, uh, I, I have so much respect for him and what he's done in the game. And you're right, the, his players loved him. His players absolutely adore him. And I think that's because of the communication factor that, and that he would build the relationships that were necessary. We had that game in common. We had the wild card game. Uh, also, that nobody talks about, he was with the Indians when we beat them in the wild card game to play the Red Sox. Was that oh, I don't know, but it's that 12, or 11, 13, whatever that year was. That was a big game. Uh, that was uh, where we won. I think it was four to one. Alex Cobb pitched great. We then played the uh, Red Sox in a ALDS and lose, but then eventually gets to the big moment with the World Series in Game Seven. So he and I have had some really uh, big games uh, against one another. As managers, and like I said, the respect is is enormous that I have for him. Um, if he chooses to do this, uh, again, I could not be happy for him going out on his own terms. I think it's great. So, yeah, he's, he's a special guy. Uh, every, we have a lot of common friends that I, when I talk to them, they feel the same way. So if he does choose to do this, I wish him nothing but the best, but he's been outstanding. Joe,
5: I see a lot of similarities with you and, and Terry and the way you guys manage your ball clubs and connect with players, uh, it starts with honesty. I mean, mm-hmm. I always said that was the number one trait of Joe Torre. Um, players knew that whatever he told them, there was no agenda behind it. It was the honest truth. And sometimes, maybe it was, uh, you know, not great news. You didn't want to hear that you weren't playing or dropped from the rotation, but you knew it was coming from a genuine place. Terry Francona is the same way. Uh, I think he allows players to be themselves. He encourages it, that the best version of yourself, the most productive version as a baseball player, is going to be a guy who's able to be himself and and not fit into a system. Uh, Doesn't have a lot of rules, and I know you're big on that. Uh, Give players a freedom to really express themselves and be themselves as long as they're putting the work in. No problem. That's Terry Francona. Um, And probably the most famous story with Terry Francona, and there's a million to those, is falling behind the Yankees, right? 0-3 in the 0-4 ALCS. And, you know, it's a wet night at Yankee Stadium, and the Red Sox decide not to take BP on the field. Kevin Millar says, you know, we're sick of listening to the Yankeeographies on the scoreboard for an hour and a half while we're working out in the field before the game. <laughs> uh, and that's when it was Millar and a couple of other guys, Johnny Damon, decided let's take a shot at Jack Daniels to get us ready for this game. And, of course, they won the game. You'd have to do that the next night and so on and so forth. And it was just that kind of that culture that Terry Francona really always, no matter what his teams were, whether they were World Series teams or not, just encouraged guys to be themselves. And uh, I saw that with your clubs. And and I think it's – and, again, it's not – you don't want to be known as, quote, unquote, a player's manager because you're too lax – terry like you he wasn't beyond you know having to drop a hammer on his club with it, just airing him out once in a while or, or having a bench a guy if he's not giving you 90 feet but i just think establishing that culture that atmosphere where players can be themselves um boy it's it, that's what i think of terry frank cohen when i think about his years managing
2: right on um that, I, I think all that is pertinent i you're right uh, philosophically I agree with everything you just said and, and to just to boil it down. If I tell you the truth, you might not like me for a week or 10 days, but if I lie to you, you're going to hate me forever. And that's pretty much when I have to have a tough conversation. I will think that in advance, um, you know, I've been doing it for a while. I've had some tough conversations since the mid eighties, um, uh, uh, seriously in Geonautry park in the little office there, where the Gene Mock used to sit at, um, during instructional leagues I'd bring guys in and we would um, go positives, negatives, and then uh, read off to them what I perceived to be the goals for this camp. And then I wanted them to write down what their goals are for this camp, bring it back to me. Then at the end of the camp, we would review all of this stuff. Um, so it, a lot of it came down to just being very frank with all of these guys. And they love it. They, they, a real professional loves frankness. They want to hear exactly what you're thinking. And when you do that, when you walk out on the field there and they look at you, there's not like, well, what is he thinking? They know what I'm thinking. They know exactly what I'm thinking. that's why I was really big on these uh, meetings, um, whether it was instructional league, spring trainings, you know, took it to the Rays, took it to the uh, Cubs, et cetera. Uh, started that in 1984, 1985, actually. So that's important. I mean, I think if any any manager, whether it's in baseball or in any uh, organization or business group, and actually I've had this conversation with uh, with some in, the, in those positions, uh, one piece of advice would be I would – as much as you can, have individual meetings with uh, your your lead bulls, whatever, whoever you perceive these people to be, or as many employees as you can, because when you do that and you really uh, create this transparency, where I know exactly what my boss, the leader, is thinking uh, in general and about me, uh, it permits this more um, uh, an ease about my job where I could walk and I could see him or her and I'm not going to be like, well, what are they thinking? Because the, the what happens is we always imagine the worst. You're always going to think the worst about regarding regarding what does the group or the organization or the leader think about me? And that's a bad place to be in. And that's where you, you're you imagining things that are not true, but you, you give them a, a certain level of truth and power. So these are the reasons why I, I've done it the way I've done it. And as you described, I think it's exactly what Terry's done, too.
5: Hey, Joe, again, that game seven in 2016, it it really is one of the, the greatest baseball games that any of us have seen and really across baseball history. It's so much strategy, so much back and forth. Um, I wonder if you ever had a chance to talk to Terry after that game in the in the years since then about, you know, being part of, let's face it, uh, baseball history from the strategic standpoint I mean it was an interesting game to run I I wanted to ask you about the situation where Francona did something I have never seen before or since and that's he took an outfielder out of the game in the middle of an inning it was the ninth inning Jason Hayward stole second advanced to third on the throwing error now he's the winning run at third base and Terry Francona takes out coco crisp to put a better arm in the outfield which was michael martinez and as it turned out michael martinez is at the plate with two outs in the last inning and the guy really had not batted much at all for cleveland um that was an interesting move by terry francona i mean he, like you he's not afraid to make an outside the box move there's no question about that but uh, just wondering even about that call um, and on your end, sending Jason Hayward in that spot. But if you ever had a chance to talk to Terry about being part of baseball history.
2: Have not quite frankly have not. Um, uh, I don't know why not. There's no reason why not, but we have not done that. Uh, but getting back to that particular move, Coco Crisp had a really bad arm. Uh, he had heard it years ago, even in Oakland and Boston. He was, he just did not throw well. So it's understandable why he would make that move. I mean, if the fly ball's at the Coco in an area where, where he could have made a throw to the plate and we're safe, he would, have, he would have killed himself after the game for not doing it. If he had thought about it, i.e., here comes uh, Javi Baez. Again, Jason's on third. Pitcher's uh, sweeps, kind of a sweep slider he's going to chase right here. Even if it's two strikes, the better opportunity would be to safety squeeze because part of that is that you don't have to go after the pitch if you don't want to. You could pull it back if it's a ball and accept ball four. there's all kinds of things going on. So these are the things you think of you prep yourself for, then you decide to do in the moment when they, when they work, my goodness, you're glorified when they don't, you're an idiot. Um, so yeah, I'm listening when it came down to that ninth inning, I'd much prefer facing Martinez in the extra innings, as opposed to Coco crisp, who is actually, you know, not a bad right-handed hitter. And so that it all worked out that way, but you can't, um, you have one moment, you have one moment in time to make that decision. It's, um, Revisionism is doesn't work because uh, when you're in the dugout and all these things are swirling through your head and you've prepped yourself for that, you make the decision. Some guys would never make that decision because the thought never came to them, quite frankly. And that's maybe that's the 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 bane of having too much experience or too many thoughts or or having been in these situations before. And then all of a sudden, wow, I need to do this right now. And then it doesn't play out that way. And then why did you do it? So. Uh, no I have not had that uh conversation with with uh, Tito probably will at some point but again um quite frankly the fact that Martinez was up there really was a lot better than Coco.
5: Yeah it's one of my favorite points in a game that had just a million of them where you can go back and look at all the decisions that were made or weren't made and for Tito to to take out his outfielder and then for you to put a safety squeeze on uh with two strikes on the batter is it's just It speaks to these guys as managers, Joe Madden, Terry Francona, a lot in common. Terry Francona finishing a tremendous career, more than 3,000 and 2,000 games managed in the big leagues. Um, I'm not sure what he's going to do next, but we wish him all the best. Mm -hmm. Joe, we're going to take a quick break and we'll wrap up this last week of the regular season edition
0: of the Book of Joe right after this. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret.
8: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: All right, Joe, it's the last week of the regular season. The air is getting a little cooler. Um, mm. Do you? I have to ask you this: Do you change what you're driving based on the time of year? You've got some vehicle choices to make, and I'm not sure whether this time of year presents better for one of your vehicles than another.
2: God, it's such a great question. Um, right now, the, I'm only being limited by the fact that I got to get a couple cars registered in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm now a Pennsylvania resident, and um, I drew, brought out the Bel Air the other day, uh, call her Bella, and. The 350 with fuel injection, the guy that put it together, took seven years to build this car. Mm. Oh, my God, it runs. It just runs beautifully. So I drove that. I'm waiting on the convertible before the weather. I got the 72 Chevelle, uh, beautiful, I call it candy apple blue. Bought it in Chicago when I was still with the Rays. 350 also with the six-speed transmission. Again, fuel injected. Beautiful. That's what I want to drive right now.
5: Yeah, neither neither one of those is a mutter, by the way. If no. you've
2: been on the East Coast the last three days here, you <laughs> Right. You're no, not, you're not taking out those babies. No. <laughs> no, they're they're in the firehouse right now. They're getting they're just getting some rest. Uh, and my van like my van is the one. The van, um I'm um, it's getting cleaned up. There's a couple issues with it yet, but the van is the one. The van is like really what I wanted to beat around in all of northeastern Pennsylvania. It's a seventy six Dodge Van Tradesman two hundred, uh, you know. Pretty much a Shaggin wagon. Uh, it's got the great uh, Shag inside, tremendous sound system, wonderful air conditioning, new leather seats that are avocado green with burnt orange. Uh, got a TV in the back. Uh, and Again, I am so looking forward to driving this. It's got a 360 in it now with a, a 408 Stroker kit. It's really, it's a little bit loud, but it's really cool. That's what I want to do because once it gets, once it snows and bad up there, None of these play. I, I won't take any of these things out unless the, the roads are dry and it's not going to freeze. So, yeah, right now I want to get the Chevelle out there. I want the convertible. I want the top-down. Last point, the 59 El Caminos on its way, and this thing is a beauty, man. I, I get more stops on the street when I'm driving the, the 59 El Camino the first year they made them. It's got that real nautical wood in the back in the bed. A beautiful red interior, killer sound system. I know I could go on and on, but that is the one I want to get behind the wheel as soon as I get back to PA. That is a beautiful car. It is the Shaggin' Wagon, by the way, is also a beautiful car.
5: Yeah. What is the name of the color? That's like a a, bron- a desert bronze or something. What
2: what is the name of that color? I don't know the exact. You're right. It's a it's a desert landscape on it. I bought it through Craigslist from some dude outside of Pittsburgh at least ten years ago. I don't know the exact date. I was on I was on every list. I wanted a 76 Dodge Van because Doug Slavette used to take me to Cal State Fullerton in 1976 for my first Angel Spring training. We used to work out at Cal State Fullerton. He'd pick me up at Aunt Ted's house and Uncle Rick's on Gardner Street in um, Dorado Park in Long Beach. He'd pick me up. We'd drive down to Long Beach State. We would work, I mean, excuse me, to uh, Cal State Fullerton. We'd work out and he'd drive me back and he had a 76 Black Dodge van, and for years I wanted one of those. So I I researched, researched, researched. Finally, I think I paid about uh, nine or ten thousand bucks for this. Way put way more into it than that, but uh, believe me, it runs great when it's right on. And it and it's I'll tell you the thing about these. It's the it's the Jeep. It, it it really handles like a Jeep in a parking lot. The wheelbase is so far forward and back that it really is maneuverable. So that's why I got it. And it's uh, it's that uh, desert landscape. Uh, kind of an orange, like you're saying, brown, like almost like you're in the a desert between um, Arizona and New Mexico. It's gorgeous. And I, I can't wait to get, wait, I uh, cannot wait to get back behind the wheel on that one. Key question, Joe, does it have an eight track player? No, I don't need it anymore. Cause I got Bluetooth. <laughs> I mean, I got Bluetooth. Uh, once you Bluetooth it, it's like, you know, you just uh, put, bring your phone in there and I'll, and just hook it up, man. you got everything at your disposal, and the sound is incredible. Oh, Focal speakers, beautiful. Sounds lovely. Hey. It does sound lovely. This is uh, this
5: is it for the regular season. We are certainly going to be back next week diving into the postseason matchups. Cool. A few spots still left to decide here. So uh, anything special this week, Joe, to take us out in our final
2: regular season edition of The Book of Joe? You know what? It's incredible because uh, for the folks that don't know this, sometimes, like days like this when we don't have a guest, I, I really don't know where uh, Tommy's going to go with the topics, and I just react to them extemporaneously.
5: I do like to surprise you. I, and I love it. I actually love it. it tests <laughs> and me I like way.
2: that I can go anywhere, and you cover it so well. But here's the thing. I, uh, so I pick up my, my quote of the day without knowing the topics of the day, right? And this could not be more germane, and I love it. And it comes from Herman Melville, who, you know, Moby Dick, and um, I read read, uh, Wisdom of the Ages by um, Wayne Dyer years ago. It's like 60 of his, what he perceives to be some of the most critical passages in history uh, from the most influential people, and he has a passage from Melville with Moby Dick, and it's about your insular Tahiti where you need to escape to when it gets crazy. But this... Also comes from Melbourne. It really, I love it, and I'm going too far here, but it is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. Wow, when I read that, did I love that. It's so true, and it cannot be more germane, like I said, to what's going on in the world today. Everybody wants to imitate everybody else. It's just the real um, imaginative, original person sometimes has a hard time because he does not really morph into the group as easily in a sense. So I love that. Fail in originality as opposed to succeed in imitation. Wow, that's what I love to see in baseball.
5: That is so well said, Herman Melville. I'm not sure if he ever covered baseball, but that was some writer who hit the nail on the head because to me. Even Doubleday had to be buddies. <laughs> to me, it's those who want to kind of copy others and, and join the quote-unquote wisdom of the crowd. That's the definition of being average. And who wants to be average? Be yourself
2: but look at your, your work as a, as a writer, man. You're so original. You're so able to, uh, with your research and, and your own uh, vast resource of knowledge and your, your own personal history, you're able to weave things together so well. And that's all original. That's not you, you, you don't imitate anybody. And that's why people love your writing so much.
5: Find your own inner Tahiti also. I love that. That's right. That's right, <laughs> baby. That's
2: right. That's right.
5: Check it out. Hey, we'll see you next week on The Book of Joe.
2: All right, brother. Thank you, man.
5: The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones
2: who get it done.
3: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is